Blog Talk Radio. Let me tell you about something new. A new show called G's Power. G's Power. Real talk for real saints. Are you ready? And it's for real. Welcome to G's Power Hour live every weekday at 11.30 a.m. on Never Had It So Good Entertainment Network. Your host, G, will bring you informative and entertaining guests and a variety of topics in a way that you can absorb and enjoy. Listen in weekdays and call in at 516-387-1944. We love interaction. All shows can be downloaded if you miss one or found on iTunes the next day. G's Power Hour is powered by Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, kings and queens, angels and saints. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today, and I hope you had a wonderful and blessed and safe weekend. And thank you for taking the time out to be with us again this week. If you if this is your first time, then welcome, and hope you find it um, enjoyable and informative and entertaining. And uh, we strive to do all that and, and more as much as we can. And so last week we began um, trying to do a career week and introduce you to different people, some that have been on the show before, some that are first time to talk about their career path because we know, yeah, maybe the kids aren't listening to me, but there are moms and dads and aunts and uncles and cousins and mentors and teachers, and we want to kind of give them insight in terms of what careers are out there, um, that if you see something in a particular student that uh, you say, hey, maybe they would be good at this, maybe they would be good at that, or maybe they shouldn't do this because it requires X, Y, and Z. We just want to give you some options and some food for thought. So today, because, you know, things happen, life happens. We didn't get a chance to do it Friday, but we're doing it today. Today we are welcoming back uh, FAMU Law Professor Mark Dorison to join us today. Good morning. How are you, sir? Oh, I couldn't be any better. How are you, G? I'm wonderful and, and just delighted and, and blessed that you join us today. Thank you so very much. I know you're busy. It's my gr- very great privilege and honor. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much. So let's get started. Um, <laughs> tell everybody where you are now in terms of what you do and, and you know, what it, and then talk a little bit about what it took for you to get here and then kind of when you knew, what, what clicked for you in terms of, you know, what, it, what made your decision in terms of what you were going to do. Sure. Well, so right now I am uh, an associate professor and the director of uh, clinical programs and field placements here at Florida A&M University College of Law in Orlando. Um, I've been here, uh, it's just this week will be my two-year anniversary. And um, in that capacity, I uh, teach classes um, and also run our, what we call in the law school, our experiential education program. So it's uh, classes designed to give students hands-on legal experience, actually um, working as lawyers under the supervision of lawyers um, and representing clients and really getting to take what they learn in the classroom and put it out into practice. And uh, I teach an economic justice clinic um, in which the students directly represent small businesses, entrepreneurs who want to start small businesses, nonprofits working in the community um, with all the legal uh, issues and challenges they might have um, with the goal of really working to address the economic disparities in our community. Um, my backstory is, is kind of a long and convoluted one, um, and so please interrupt me with questions if you want. Uh, I started out, um, I went to college not really knowing what I wanted to do, uh, had considered going to, you know, going on to law school, but didn't really have any particular excitement or passion about it. Um, while I was in college, this was in the uh, heady uh, days of the Reagan administration in the 1980s, 
um, a lot of con- sort of a lot of conservative policies ascendant. I kind of had my political awakening and realized what I wanted to do was um, something that would make a direct impact in the lives of of others and and in a way that would have a positive make positive social change and I thought as a young college student the best way to do that would to become a teacher so I I finished college I went to graduate school to get a master's degree because I believe that all teachers should be masters of their subject Um, and so I started teaching high school that was my uh, really first career and I, I taught in a rural school in North Carolina and um, that experience really really helped open my eyes um, to the impacts of really the legacy of discrimination on the ground. So I, I taught in a school that was almost 40% black um, but did not have any black teachers or black administrators and the students were acutely aware of that. Um, and the significance of that. And uh, I really love teaching. I, I think I did a good job. I think I, uh, I believe I made a difference in the lives of my students. Um, but what I realized um, after, after a while was that even the best teacher um, can only have a limited impact on making <clears throat> broader structural change. And so at that point, I thought, you know, maybe – Maybe I should give the law another look um, uh, because I could see that um, I wanted to have a bigger impact than what, I was, what was happening in the classroom. <clears throat> Not to say that wasn't important work or very impactful, but I just felt like for all the good work that was happening, you know, in my class for these, in the lives of these students for 45 minutes a day, I knew what was happening the rest of the day in school I knew what the administrative structure looked like, and I knew what they were experiencing uh, in their lives when they were out of school, you know, in their homes, um, the, you know, the issues with um, access to fair and equitable housing, access to good job opportunities, um, you know, to health care, their interactions with the criminal justice system. And so that led me to go into law. And, and I will say I went in with the idea that I wanted to become a civil rights lawyer. So this, okay, so going back to college and getting to college, not really knowing what path you wanted to take, um, that's a, well, in some cases, especially with, with you're talking about uh, going into law, you, you would think that by the time you got to college, you would have known what was ahead of you because that, that has got to be a very um, grueling path, uh, um, one that requires a lot of discipline and whatnot. Um, why do you think it took you so long to make a decision on your career? The you know, I really went to college with the with the hope of, um, you know, just really uh, expanding, you know, my experiences. Just, you know, I, I came mm-hmm. from a, uh, you know, a suburban high school in Long Island uh, that was pretty small, um, and, you know, really just sort of it seemed like every, you know, most people in my high school went to college somewhere. And it seemed like that was the, you know, my parents had really drummed into me that you needed to get a college degree to do anything, um, uh, to be able to support yourself and your family. And um, so really I went there, um, you know, probably with the idea of just really wanting to kind of explore the different opportunities. And, um, again, was sort of, you know, taking political science classes and some science classes and then um, got engaged in the, the political movement on campus around divestment from South Africa. So uh, I'm sure you remember in the 80s, 
um, there was a lot of uh, activism in on college campuses and really across the country about um, divesting from the South African apartheid government. And lots of colleges mm-hmm. had um, their endowments heavily invested in 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 the South African government. So um, I, there was a protest on campus that I went to and started getting more information and then, you know, got really engaged in that kind of, you know, grassroots uh, activism. And that, you know, what I, what I experienced there was inspiring, you know, the idea of, you know, people working together, coming together, organizing um, in, in an effort to compel you know, real change, meaningful change in, you know, in the society. And the work that the student organizing did eventually got the university. The university set up a committee, and, I mean, it took a long time, but the university eventually did um, divest its portfolio. And so that was, that gave me a real sense of, you know, the power of organizing. And and, and what I mean by that especially is the power of, you know, direct personal engagement with others, talking about issues, educating yourself, um, educating others, and, and looking at both the kind of micro issues, what can I do right here, and it mm-hmm. to affect more macro issues. And so, um, you know, again, I, I, I really felt like the, the best way to do that would be to get into a school and make a difference and, you know, help other kids, young people, realize that they had this power and can make this change. So was it the anti-apartheid movement that really kind of sealed the deal for you in college in terms of, okay, this is this is the direction, you know, this is where I'm going, this is or going to try to go? Because as we all know, sometimes we, we get in our minds that we're going to do one thing and then life kind of, you know, turns us in a different direction. But was this kind of the, the launch, the catalyst for you? I, I think so, yes. I mean, th- what what it – taught me and then other other stuff that I got involved in was um, that that it was possible through you know commitment and dedication and um, effort to to really to make a meaningful social change and so I didn't know exactly what you know that didn't I didn't know exactly what would be the best way to do that but I knew I wanted to pursue a career that could do that and then when I started thinking about, well, you know, again, this was the 80s, I, and um, I knew people who were going to law school in the 80s, and at that time, you know, what my sense of lawyers and certainly all the people I knew who were going to law school wanted to go work on Wall Street, you know, wanted to go um, work mm. in big, uh, big firms and, you know, basically, you know, move money from one pile to another. And I, I wasn't interested in doing anything of that, like that. Um, I didn't really think about you know, that's sort of what I expected law school would lead you to. So I, I really pushed away from that and then, you know, thought that being a teacher, being in a classroom, um, that that would be a way to make a real meaningful impact, but also one that would have kind of a ripple effect. Because, you know, if you could help, you know, some some young people sort of realize their potential, and then they could become change makers as well. And and one so, thing that the organizing taught me was, you know, that and I've learned over the years as a civil rights lawyer is among the many responsibilities I think we all have is passing it on, right? Helping raise the next generation um, to do continue the work. So, what made you decide um, to do the to teach in college versus elementary school, middle school, high school? Uh, what what was it about being a professor in, in college? Well, I, I started out, I, I taught in a high school, actually. I, I, that's, where, okay. that's where I was teaching. And I, I chose to teach in a high school because I thought, um, I thought that's where uh, I could make the biggest impact. I felt like that's where... Um, that's where, you know, students either, you know, move forward or ended up, for whatever reason, going sideways and onto a, onto a, uh, a different path. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. In retrospect, I think if I could do it all again, I would, I would probably want to teach elementary school. I think, uh, I think having um, male teachers in elementary schools is really important. But I thought at the time, I thought high school would be, would be the best way to make an impact. And I, I, I will also, it's a great question, too, because I was, I was really, I really underestimated, um, you know, naively, I guess, how even by the time kids get to ninth grade, which I taught a lot of ninth graders, um, mm-hmm. they already feel like they're, they're, path is set, right? They, they already, they have internalized in a lot of ways that they're not smart, they're not going to have a successful career, they're not, I mean, they, a lot of these students, have, they've just been beat down by the time they're, you know, ninth grade, mm-hmm. so, you know, 14 years old, and that's heartbreaking. It is, it is, and, and that's one of the reasons I asked you about um, you know, getting to college and and not you know having something you know clear you know already clarified for you because a lot of you know students by that time whether it's a you know the, the whether the path is a good one or or not you know they have kind of solidified certain things about how they they expect their life to go by that time so yeah you got to catch them really, really early, if at all possible. For yeah. sure. I mean, I, I specifically wanted to be in high school because of that. I felt like kids who got to college, they, they are already, they've already on a, on a more successful path. But I, I can't mm-hmm. tell you how, you know, how shocking it was. I had kids, you know, in my class in high school, you know, on the first day say, Look, I turned 16 in two months, and I'm dropping out on that day. So, I'm not. I'm just going to sit in the back of the class and be quiet and don't call on me. And you know, I had students who like, you know, you know, they got a textbook on the first day and turned it in. You know, three months later, still in the plastic wrap. Um, So that, yeah, that was pretty. You know, those, those cases were heartbreaking. Um, that is heartbreaking. And uh and and the thing is so much of it is I mean the, the you know you're 14 years old you have still have so much potential right the idea that any anybody has decided or internalized the fact that they're not smart that they're not you know they're not uh, there's no expectation of them succeeding it's just it was devastating. And um you know and for for every uh, student that I worked with that, you know, had a, had a very positive experience in the classroom the, it, and was very rewarding, those ones uh, who didn't was was really tough. But but again, there were a few I think who came in with that attitude and I think went out with a sense like they could they they could do better, and, and so that was Good. that was encouraging. Ooh. But what was discouraging was the institutionalized inequity in, you know, American public education, which I kind of learned about in the abstract in college and studying, you know, education and things, but being in the classroom and seeing, um, you know, just how uh, the, the whole structure was, you know, worked against a lot of students um, was incredibly frustrating. And, um, you know, like, for example, students, the, you know, students, the students were tracked. They had tracking back in the 80s. You know, there was sort of the, the college track. There was like, and then there was like the vocational track. And then right. what, what they called the at-risk track, which meant at risk of dropping out. Um, and that was the, those were the students I mainly taught. And those students knew exactly, you know, who they, what track they were in, and what that meant, and how they had been ca- uh, categorized and labeled, and um, you know it, that was just one of the many things that you had to work against. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember also like hearing teachers in the teachers' lounge use racial epithets talking about their students, um, mm. and you know the. Um, 
the the resources that were made available um, to different to different programs and things. So, you know, even doing what I thought was good work or what I was at least my best effort as a teacher, I really felt that there were, you know, to, for there to be really meaningful change, the whole the whole structure had to be changed. And so yeah. that's when I realized maybe maybe there would be a way to you know to do that by going and studying law. You know, you were talking about labels, and I I think we really do get caught up way too much in labels, truly too much. Um, you know, even if you know you fall under what could be deemed a good label that doesn't necessarily mean it's, you know, it's a good thing because, you know, with labels come certain expectations and you may meet those expectations. You may not meet those expectations. You may exceed those expectations, but if you're, you know, mentally wrapped around the label, it kind of just, you know, stagnates you, I think, in terms of, you know, what, what the possibilities are in your life. So I, I don't know if labels are always a good thing. Um, I remember being in a um, – I took some catechist classes. where I, I worked with the Diocese of Orlando, and one of them was about uh, moral teaching and stuff. But there were, there were others, and they were talking about how uh, students, you know, they, they should be all taught a particular way. And, and, you know, and I'm like, you know, not everybody learns the same way. Okay, not everybody tests well, not every, you know, so, but that doesn't make them stupid. Okay. That's right. Not everybody, yeah, not everybody tests well. And then some of the people that you had, that you've had in our history that have fallen short in the classroom have become some of our greatest inventors, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, just because they didn't make it in the classroom doesn't mean that they could not have a positive impact on individuals and on society. So I, I, I really have an issue sometimes with the whole label thing. And, in fact, I ended up politically going um, no party affiliation because I'm like, okay, if I'm a Democrat, I, this is expected of me. If I'm a Republican, this is expected of me. And if I don't adhere to or toe the party line, then I'm not a good either one of them. And I'm like, I just want the person that's going to do the best job. Okay, or I want the issue that's going to have the most positive impact on all of us, you know. So, you know, you you label me, you limit me. So. That's exactly right. I mean, and I think that that is um, that sums it up perfectly. I mean, you know, we you know, if you don't have expectations, you know, I think especially for for young people you know, they they will live up or down to your expectations. And so mm-hmm. to say, you know, we don't really expect you to do very well. We don't expect you um, to go to college or we don't expect you to to do this or do that. Um, you know, that that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And those examples like that you're that you're referencing become the exception. Um, and then those are those exceptions are used to are used to further, you know, um, marginalize people and say, look, here's other folks that did it. Why couldn't you do it? Here's someone from your neighborhood that went to college and went to a Ivy League and look at you. Why didn't you do anything? It's your fault. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It, it exactly. decontextualizes really the legacy of exclusion and discrimination. Um, and and that, that's what's so frustrating. And, it, and, you know, I saw it up close as a young person when I was teaching in high school, but as when I became a civil rights lawyer and started representing uh, you know, community groups that were fighting against things like a landfill in their neighborhood or um, fighting against restrictions on affordable housing. Um, you saw those same attitudes reflected in the decision-making authorities, the city councils, the county commissions, even the school boards, you know, saying, you know, that this idea that, that, that these communities – had any reason to expect any more was not even in their in the universe of their thinking, and so um, 
you know, and the idea that, oh, we could just put a landfill there because, you know, it's, it's a, uh, the land value is cheap and, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's, it's kind of on the outskirts of town without ever thinking about, well, what, what are the, you know, what about the interests and rights for fair treatment for the people who live there? Mm-hmm. Exactly. We are going to take a quick break. Um, we blew past it, but that was fine because <laughs> we, had, we had a lot to talk about. <laughs> so we're going to continue in a minute. We are here with Professor Mark Dorison of the FAMU College of Law. If you have questions or comments, the number is 516-387-1944. Dee's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. We'll be right back. Over the past 60 years, Dove Beauty Bar's superior formula has remained unchanged. But when it comes to beauty, everything changed. Together, we redefined beauty. We said no to stereotypes and yes to every type. We let go of judgments and embraced what makes us unique. We're proud to have been there with you, caring for you every step of the way. Here's to the next 60 years. Having a wedding, reception, family reunion, planning a banquet, or some other fundraising event. Need to share your knowledge through a workshop or seminar, or it's a difficult time and you need to plan a wake or repast. Let us help. At our gatherings, let us reduce the stress and make the occasion memorable, treasured. Call our gatherings at 407-968-9387 or email ourgatherings at yahoo.com. Let us help plan your special event. Good morning. Welcome back to G's Power Hour. I never had it so good entertainment. I am your host. Gee, thanks so much for being with us today. We are still talking career possibilities and paths, and we are here with FAMU College of Law Professor Mark Dorison. And if you have questions or comments, the number is 516-387-1944. So civil rights, goodness gracious. <laughs> that is the, no, I mean, I'm because I'm thinking it, it's – it's kind of broad. Sometimes it's a little difficult to define. Um, and then there's just so many things that, uh, I guess, so many challenges, I think, because people don't really have a good idea in terms – and I know I'm diverting a little bit from the career thing, but still, people don't really have an idea of what civil rights are in – you know, I mean, the term gets tossed out there, but there's no real definition of – what how what does it mean to me? What gets violated when my civil rights gets violated? So you, I've had a, a, I have another civil rights attorney. He'll actually be on tomorrow. That I've asked this question. I'm going to ask you: What are civil rights, and how do I make sure that mine are protected? That that is a great question, and I love to hear it. Um, you know, to me, uh, I think civil rights at, at its core is the right to be treated fairly in in all aspects of the the our human community so everything from education to voting to public accommodations to access to public services um it is it is the right to be treated uh, equally and fairly um and also, I would say it is part of civil rights is the the right to um, redress again this country's legacy of structural racism, um, which continues um, to have disparate impacts on people of color. You know, in all of those areas I just mentioned. So, mm-hmm. you know, at one point, I think civil rights was about um, was very much about remedying individual discriminatory actions. Right. Somebody was wasn't hired or was fired or wasn't promoted um, because of their race mm-hmm. or their gender. Um, and it was about addressing that kind of that kind of individualized adverse action. But, but as we have progressed as a society, we, we, there are somewhat 
less of those. But what we see instead are the continuing, you know, the continuing and entrenched impacts of this, of this, you know, 400-year history of, of marginalization of, of people of color. And so it's not enough, you know, it, I teach this in my class, you know, it's not enough for us as a society to stop segregating, for example, right? What we had to do is take affirmative steps to integrate. It's not enough for us to stop discriminating or we've got to take affirmative steps to remedy the legacy of, of that discrimination. And, and that's, that's part of the reason why that recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action was, was so heartbreaking because that, what that, those policies were were an attempt to really affirmatively and in a forward-looking way address the, the continuing harms of race discrimination. Oh, goodness gracious. I, I, I can get off subject really quick in terms of the career thing and, and ask you so many more questions. And I think I'm going to have you back when you have some time to ask you some more of those questions. But Yeah, I don't, um, I'm sorry if I'm taking it in more directions. No, or directions that's okay. Go. That's, I, I have um, you no got me fired up, G. <laughs> well, that's okay. Keep that fire. I know you got it. We're going to bring you back. We're going to talk more about that part, too. But I want to ask you about the direction you've taken now because what you talk about fairness and everything and and unfortunately a lot of the fairness has to do unfairness has to do with economic disparities and so you kind of you're kind of now in that arena trying to deal with economics can you talk a little bit more about uh your program and um how you've gotten how how you've gotten the students engaged in it Sure. The um, so, and I and let me just before I jump into the program, let me just appreciate again that question because I do think the issue of economic disparity, really wealth, you know, wealth disparities, are at are at the core of a lot of the other inequities that we see, um, and are also the product of those inequities. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. so. Um, if you think about, you know, why are there these, you know, this huge racial wealth gap in America, you know, you can trace it directly back to, you know, government policies and practices um, that were designed to, you know, disadvantage um, black people in America, like redlining, mm-hmm. like, uh, ex- you know, how the GI, the GI Bill Social Security, you know, how it excluded agricultural workers and domestic workers, um, you know, access to the, to the legal system, which led to many um, African-American families not having wills, which leads to the loss of property over time. So mm-hmm. there, there are a host of causes. We still have other like things, these, too. We have gentrification. Which, that's right. You know, I, I say that to people, and they look at me cross-eyed. Um, we have eminent domain. Um, we have – see, I'm a realtor, too, so some of this really kind of sticks with me. Uh, yeah, we foreclosures, have, um, un- I mean, predatory lending, appraisals. all of that. Yeah. That's right, that, appraisals. Yeah, the whole thing with the appraisals is really, like, that's, that's an issue with me right now. But so, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, what happens is, you know, they, it, it kind of, it, it, to me, it's, it goes away from where the focus is, and they, they kind of say, okay, there's – you know, there's too much, too many eyes on on this process. There's too, you know, there's too much controversy. We're gonna try something else and something new, and it's, they slip into something else where they they kind of modify, uh, you know, or, or use the system in a different way. And and then so, uh, the, you know, by the time you, you kind of catch up, it's, you know, certain things have already happened, you know. And that's so, right. That's exactly right. And you know the. Um, and it, it, and all of those things that you know are cumulative, right? It's not you know it, it builds each one builds on the other, and they also build over time, right? So the the disparity, it's like you know it's like two cars start out in the same place, let's say, but they're going slightly you know like a V. The further they go, mm-hmm. the wider the part they get, and that's you know that's what mm-hmm. we've seen. Um, and so, so 
we at FAMU College of Law, we wanted to the dean Dean Keller uh, wanted to launch an economic justice initiative. Really, you know, the law school has a mission uh, to provide um, legal advocacy to under-resourced communities. Uh, that's right in our mission statement, um, and. Uh, she wanted to redirect that focus to issues of economic justice. So when I came here two years ago, one of the one of the plans was to start a new clinic, um, an economic justice clinic, which, as I mentioned, has uh, students working in the clinic. It, it, the clinic's like a little nonprofit law firm, and the students working in the clinic are like young associate lawyers, and I'm like the senior partner, and. These students provide direct legal uh, services um, to small businesses, to entrepreneurs who want to start small businesses, to nonprofits um, working in underserved communities like Paramore or Eatonville um, or Pine Hills or places um, where helping you know new businesses develop or small businesses grow or nonprofits better serve those constituents um, will have the effect of not only helping those individual clients, of course, but to um, reinvesting in those communities and hopefully begin to address some of those economic disparities. Okay. So, and you, you've had students working on different things, including I think you were doing a project over in Eatonville the last time you were on the show. We talked a little bit about that. So yes. How is, how is that project. going? What is what is going on with that? How is that going? Yeah, it's going great. So one of the one of the big issues in the wealth gap is, um, or one of the ways that families build wealth in America is by owning property and being able to uh, retain it and then pass it on to. Um, their children and their grandchildren and other generations. And what, what we have seen in America, you know, over the last hundred years is an extraordinarily tragic loss of African-American property, uh, land ownership. Um, a lot of people think about, like, the, about farmers, in particular black farmers, but it's also true with, um, with, just, with just residential property, residential homes. And... Mm-hmm. Um, and the, one of the big causes of that is what we call heirs' property. The the when somebody dies without a will, um, the mm-hmm. property goes to the neck to their heirs, um, and, and they all own it equally in undivided shares. It's it's a very um, you know it's an it's a very unstable form of property ownership. So you know if you if your uh, my grandmother dies and she without a will. And she mm-hmm. has five kids. Uh, all five of those kids now have an equal interest in the home place. Um, and none of them can do anything with that property unless they all agree. So they can't mm-hmm. um, sell it. They can't um, divide it up. They can't borrow money to, say, fix up the roof if the roof needs replacement unless all five of them agree. Um, now, Five, maybe that doesn't seem so terrible. Maybe you could get your five brothers and sisters to agree. I don't. I, it would be hard in my family, but some people, uh, the folks are willing to do that. But take that down like another generation or two. So those five kids, mm-hmm. let's say, let's say none of them has a will, and each one of them has five kids, just to make it simple. Right now we have twenty-five heirs um, that all have to agree, and you take that down another generation, or maybe. Um, you know, one person had, you know, six kids, or maybe one person, um, you know, had uh, didn't have any, and you start ending up with these fractional ownership interests. Um, yes, I, I've seen it. I've seen it in my my um, father's side of the family, where there was some relative. This was years back, and um, my father got a notice, and some of my um, first cousins got a notice because their father was had already passed mm-hmm. about a relative that had left some land and everything like that. <laughs> but then by the time it got to my, my, my first cousin, uh, 
you know, and none of us knew who this was really. But by the time it got to to it, the the land, I think her portion was worth about fourteen dollars, mm-hmm. um, which probably was um, less than what it cost for the attorneys to reach out to all of the heirs. <laughs> that, that's exactly right, and you know, it's that's a perfect example of how of how dangerous this kind of, of property ownership could be. Because your, your cousin, who, let's say, owned that $14, you know, one seventy-fifth yeah. of that property, your cousin yeah. could sell that to anybody who wants to. All they, now, all they would get is that fractional interest. But what mm-hmm. happens is developers, um, real estate speculators, will find these properties that are heirs' property, and they'll buy that share from your cousin and maybe they'll give mm-hmm. give her a hundred dollars for it now cousin says i'm never going to that property i didn't even know we owned it you know i just found out i don't even know where it, it is right <laughs> yeah. now they sell it to this developer now this developer mm-hmm. stands in the shoes of that heir that developer can then force a, a sale of that property and eat and and if the other heirs don't want to buy that person out they can force that property to be sold at auction, and they can buy the entire, the entire parcel and dispossess folks who are living there. And so we, um, in North Carolina, where I did a lot of this work, we saw that happen over and over again with land that was um, you know, near the coast, not on the coast, not beachfront property, but property somewhat inland, which was like swampy, not ever considered very valuable, and was owned by black families. And then as the, the waterfront got developed, developers started looking further inland, further inland, further inland, and they started snatching up these properties by picking off an heir and then being able to force a sale of the property. Um, mm-hmm. That's like the most nefarious way you see this happen. But it happens even in more um, uh, you know, bland ways, right? There's 20 mm-hmm. heirs that own this property, and no one pays the taxes on it. No one pays. Yep. And then what happens is the county forecloses um, because, of the tax, because of the tax liens. And then, again, a developer yep. you know, stands on this courthouse steps and picks it up. And, that's, you know, and that is happening in communities, all, black communities all around the country. And, and it's tied mm-hmm. to gentrification as well, which is something you mentioned earlier. Eatonville is a perfect example. Eatonville, mm-hmm. as you know, I'm sure all your listeners know, is uh, is 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 like a like the center of a donut with with these cities on both sides of it squishing it coming in, um, mm-hmm. and um, so the proper you know developers are looking at those properties to redevelop, um, and so there is a real threat to the to the maintenance of the history and the legacy of that community and to to black land ownership there. So we partnered with Help CDC, uh, which is a community development corporation in Eatonville, and with mm-hmm. Community Legal Services. Um, and, and we had law students. We did a, a, they did a year-long project using public records and tax records and um, to, to try to identify which properties in the town were most likely to be heirs' property. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we looked at every single parcel in the town. Uh, we're going to have a report coming out probably later this fall uh, with the results. Mm. But Help CDC then reached out to folks that, that um, we identified as high probability of heirs' property um, to, to see if they wanted free legal help in clearing the title and getting that property so it would be secured and the family would be able to hold on to it. Um, and that is one of the most critical ways to build wealth in America. Mm-hmm. You know you're going to have to come come back on when, when you get that report tightened up, okay? You know that, right? Listen, I'll come back on as long as you'll have me. But you you okay. got to – don't let me go on so long. You can just interrupt me. <laughs> well, I'm getting ready to do that right now. We're going to take a quick break. We're here with FAMU Law Professor Mark Dorison. This is G's Power Hour. I never had it so good entertainment, and we will be right back.
This is Douglas Dobbs of Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service. We have served the Central Florida community for 29 years with quality funeral and cremation services. Honoring all religions and faiths, we have been here for many grieving families. Whether it's a complete funeral service with a burial or a simple dignified cremation, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service is here for you. Located at 430 North Kirkman Road at the 408 Expressway, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service, 407-578-7720. Dobbs, dedicated to serving our families. Hi, I'm Tim Garris. Uh, you may know me as Timmy G. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's been two decades, but I want you to know I'm back in the argument. And I've got a mix of music that can help you relax and chill out. It's smooth. It's relaxing. It's chill out jazz. The soulful mix of smooth jazz, soul, and smooth R&B. So join me every Wednesday night, 10 p.m. to midnight, on K-Ham Radio. Are you chilling? Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour. I never had it so good entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. And we're just blessed here at G's Power Hour to, to actually have access to, to more than one civil rights attorney. That's great. And, and just because you guys need to know there's more than one civil rights attorney in the land um, that don't have to have the initials BC. Um, <laughs> very good uh, civil rights attorneys. Tomorrow, uh, Kevin Anderson is coming back because I asked him a question and I wanted to know, and we got school starting back and the kids are going to be back and they're going to be susceptible to a bunch of stuff, um, not just um, academically, but, you know, stuff like bullying, stuff like, um, you know, somebody trying to cut your hair because they don't like your dread, somebody that might slam you down on the ground without assessing the whole situation you know we've seen it on on air and so i asked kevin anderson i said do children do students have civil rights i know i probably should have included you uh professor dorison on that one (laughs) so you can call in tomorrow if you want to talk about that as well (laughs) i want to know about kids what are their rights and i know the kids probably want to know too and i know the parents probably want need to be clued in because you need to know what your children's rights are in terms of, you know, communication with their teachers, uh, communicate, you know, what your rights are in terms of defending them, how they defend themselves. We're going to talk a little bit about students and civil rights tomorrow on G's Power Hour. So please join us at 1130. And in the meantime, we are going back to Professor Mark Dorison of FAMU College of Law. And if you have questions or comments, the number is 516-387-1944. So... What is the one point you want to get across to our young people as they uh, head back to the classroom when they're when they're selecting their courses, when they're selecting their um, you know possible careers? Because we know things change as you go along. Um, in, in terms of selecting, let's say uh, you know mentors and teachers and, and guide people who to guide them um, and who to listen to. What 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 are your suggestions? Well, I think my, my probably my biggest suggestion to any students would be to really think about what you're interested in and, and pursue that. Um, you know, a lot of times students think, I have to take this class, I have to take that class. And I, I, I believe that, you know, students should pursue things they're interested in. And I think not only will they have a better learning experience, um, you know, they will, they will also, you know, I think perform better academically. If you're interested in something, um, I, I would encourage students to explore that and examine it. And, you know, if it turns out you thought you were interested in it and then it turns out you're not interested in it, that's valuable information to have as well. Um, I think, I mean, I appreciate what you said about mentors. I would say find someone who's doing work um, or teaching a subject that you're interested in and, and, and talk to them about that. Um, when I, I didn't know when I graduated law school, I, all I knew was, well, when I was in law school, even before I graduated, all I knew was I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. I didn't know what that would look like. I was bound, I, you know, I took an environmental law class. I said, oh, that's civil rights. I took a, uh, children's rights class. I said that's civil rights. I really didn't know 
how I was going to do it. Um, but I was, had read in the paper about a civil rights lawyer in the town where the school was. Uh, he had a he had a high profile case representing the first uh, black police woman at the at University of North Carolina, and I just called him up and said, "Look, can I come and meet you and talk to you and uh, tell you about you know what I want to do and find out how you do it?" And he said, "Sure." And uh, we met and. Um, he ended up saying, you know, why don't you come and volunteer here in my office a couple of times a week? And then uh, I did that, and sort of um, by the time I was ready to graduate, he said, you know, come and work with me. So, I mean, I didn't go there that first day thinking it was about getting a job. What I thought was, here's someone who's doing work that, that seems really interesting. I want to I know how they do it. So that's, I think, finding those folks. And I think what you'll find, I think, my experience is most people are are excited about becoming mentors. I mean, if you ask, I think if you ask most people, can I come and talk to you about, I'm a student, a high school student or a college student, and can I just come and talk to you about what you do? I, I believe overwhelmingly most people would say, yes, I'd love to talk to you. Um, and if it turns out they can't help you, they probably know someone else who you would be good for you to talk to. So you, it, it, I encourage students to find what they're interested in and then take the initiative to pursue that, whether it's in a club, uh, you know, after school, a community organization, a professor, a teacher. Um, find folks who are doing things you think are interesting and, and, and connect with them. Yeah, because I think it's, it's better to – pursue something that, in a, you know, you're interested in, at least at first. And if it's, it's not what, you, you know, all what you think it's going to be, at least that's something you can go ahead and, and weed out and not waste a lot of time with, I wish I had done this or why didn't I do that or, you know, I should have done something else. I mean, and you still will have some of that, but, you know, as you go along, but you, you don't want to just linger on and, you know, keep holding on to something that, uh, you know, just may or, you know, it may end up being the thing that you're supposed to do or it may be the something that you definitely shouldn't do and you just need to get it out of the way. That's know? exactly so. right. And, and you know, to that point, I think it's also important to know that the path from where you are to where, you know, where you ultimately want to be, like your dream job, um, mm-hmm. is never a straight line, right? Mm-hmm. Um but sort of knowing where you'd like to end up, then what you continue to do is move in that direction. It might not be a straight move. Um, it might be, you know, I like to say it's, you know, it's more like a knight in chess. You know, it's like two steps forward, one step sideways, maybe two steps sideways, one step forward. But if, mm-hmm. if you know ultimately where you're going, you start to realize that this opportunity isn't, isn't going to get me all the way there, but it's, it's going to move me in that direction. I, I, I used to joke with students that, you know, my resume look, for a while looked like someone on the run from the federal government. I mean, it was sort of two <laughs> years and then two years and then two years someplace else. But each move yes. was on a path, you know, in, in the same direction. And each one, you know, helped me, you know, sort of zero in on that path. Um, well, so that, that's I something know my- important. My mom used to say, people used to ask my dad about his career. Um, he ended up, he was an aerospace engineer for a while, and he ended up working with the Department of Defense and stuff like that. And they were like, and, and he, he, she was saying that dad would get questions at work about how he got all of this experience. And, they were, <laughs> and the bottom line was like, uh, you just have to be black. Because, you know, you would only be on a job for so long and then people would find a way uh, or a reason to get rid of you. Mm -hmm. And so you had to find something else, you know. So, you know, it wasn't this 20 years in a gold watch thing every time, you know. That's exactly right. I mean, you don't even have that now because you just don't have – that's a whole other subject, but you just don't have employer-employee loyalty anymore like you used to. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's all about a career path. So, Professor Dorison, thank you so much. I we um, whenever you have some time, you're more than welcome back. 
Thank you very much. You oh, have a blessed day. Thank you for having oh, me. It was before you go, to before be you here. go, yes. How do people find out about your program and tell us what the name of it is again? Okay, the name of the program is the FAMU Economic Justice Clinic, and um, people can just Google that. If you just Google FAMU Economic Justice, you'll come to our homepage, and there's a link there. If you need legal help. There's a, there's a link to a form you fill out, uh, an intake form, uh, and people call, can also call, uh, call the clinic at um, 407-254-4036. And they could also email me. They could just, again, if you look on the FAMU website, you can find all my contact information there. Okay. Thank you very much. Appreciate you taking the time. You're um, so welcome. The, Delightful to be here, you have as a blessed always. day. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Shay. I Bye. thank you. Bye. I have a pet peeve I have to address before we go. I'm sorry, y'all. I got you know. I'm, I'm I limited myself to five minutes, <laughs> but you know I can go a little further with ranting, especially if Princess was on. You know that. But anyway, um, it's July 31st. And, you know, we the, the year has flown by and everything. Slow it down a little bit. I'm, I'm just saying. I am so frustrated because, I, you know, and, and I have a tendency to make, you know, to rush and hurry and everything and make things go fast. But we don't need help. We don't need not only Halloween but Christmas stuff out on the shelves on July 31st. No, the Christmas in July thing, someone's trying to pitch you something. You don't need to go and spend that kind of money right now. Enjoy it. It's not fall even. We've got another month and a half almost of summer, okay? So, yeah, things, you know, things are happening kind of a little bit you know, hurriedly, you know, schools coming back in and everything like that. But you do have time. You have weekends where – you know, you can take the kids away, you know, for a quick weekend at the beach, a day at the beach, and, you know, say, hey, you know, how how has school been, and, and just have some nice conversations with it. You know, have a picnic on the beach, have, you know, grill out in your backyard, you know, but just, just slow this stuff down. By the time Christmas gets here on December 25th, you're going to be tired of it. And that's not the way you want to celebrate Christmas. You know, I, I I personally am very frustrated. I, the little Christmas gnomes and everything like that. And I love, don't get me wrong, I truly love Christmas. But part of the celebration of Christmas is the anticipation and the preparation for it. But there are other things to celebrate in the interim. There are birthdays. There are anniversaries. There's, and I'm sorry, I don't, uh, for, and for a long time I have not celebrated Halloween. I just don't, okay? But there's Veterans Day. There's, uh, you know, and there's other, you know, events that are coming up that we need to acknowledge and recognize. October will be here before Christmas, um, and before Halloween you have Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We need to, you know, call attention to stuff like that. There's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. There's Sickle Cell Awareness Month. There are other things to focus on and draw attention to and make a positive difference on before you even get to Halloween and Christmas. Take your time. Take it step by step. Help each other and our young people appreciate each day as it comes Tomorrow is not promised. You know, you get to December 25th and look around and see how many people are still here. You know, not that we want anybody to go anywhere. We don't. But I'm just saying, you just never know. So just slow your roll a bit, okay? And that's that's what I got to say right now. I'll probably bring it up again. <laughs> but I wanted to just share that. So thank you for being with us. This has been G's Power Hour. I never had it so good entertainment. Be well, be safe, be blessed, and please remember, 
all real power comes from God. Take care.